We are starting a new series tonight, and this series is going to be titled God-Fearing Men. That phrase, God-Fearing Man, is one that you don't hear too often. It's one that in previous generations you'd hear quite a bit. I remember as a kid hearing that. He's a God-Fearing Man. He's a God-fearing man. It, it, it was the highest of compliments to be called a God-fearing man. When it comes to fear, you've got two options. The first option is you can be a man who lives in fear of other men. You can be a man who lives in fear of other men. And to delineate that a little bit more, you can be a man who lives in fear of other men. You can live in fear of the media. You can live in fear of the mob. You can live in fear of employers. You can, they're just men. You can live in fear of nations. They're just men. Maybe a lot of them, but they're men. So your first option is you can be a man who lives in the fear of other men. First Samuel. First Samuel 17, 24. Interesting verse. I'm not even going to give you the context. I'm just going to read it, and you'll know immediately what the context of this is. 1 Samuel 17, 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him, and they were greatly afraid. Who was that man? It's Goliath. Goliath... Goliath was the biggest man in the Philistine nation. He uh, was right about, I don't know, he's between 9'6 and 9'10. I mean, he would have had a shoe contract. There's no doubt about it. uh, and they all ran, including the biggest man in Israel, who was a fraud. That was the king of Israel, Saul, who looked like a leader, who stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel, and he was a fraud. He looked like a leader. He was one of those guys who walked into a room, and he just looked like he knew what he was doing, but he didn't have a clue. And you know why he didn't have a clue? Because he was afraid of other men. He had a greater fear of men than he did of God. He was a sham. He was a failure. Because he feared men. So you can be a man who lives in fear of other men. Here's your second option. You can be a God-fearing man. Same chapter, 1 Samuel 17 Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. 
And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Well, the Lord was with him. Everybody knew who Saul was. He was the king. Uh, Goliath taunted the armies and basically said, hey, our armies don't even need to fight. Just send one guy out. Just send one man, and whoever wins between the two men, that's it. So we don't need a bunch of guys killed or wounded. Just send out your, your best man. Send out your biggest man. Who was that? Saul? Saul's not going out there. Saul's a wuss. Saul's a coward. He's not going out there. He's not putting on himself on the line. But everybody knew who Saul was because he was king. So then who does God use? He uses his kid who's raising his dad's sheep. Nobody knew who David was. Probably except his brothers. And when he showed up, if you remember the story, his oldest brother was all over his case, questioning his motives. What are you doing here? When, when Samuel went to the family of David, he said, call your sons in here. He knew the next king was going to be one of those sons. And he checked all those boys out. Something was wrong. You have any other sons? Well, yeah, actually, David, but he's out. His own dad didn't think enough about him. That when the prophet said, bring all your sons in, he didn't even bring his youngest in. But the Lord knew all about David. There's a principle here. God always prepares his leaders in private. You don't need, uh, there's a lot today, a lot of talk about getting a platform, um, building a platform. That's so people know who you are. That's so that people are aware of you and your achievements and your exploits and your, you know, so you'll get liked. God always prepares his men in private. David uh, trusted God. He had, uh, so here comes a lion. What did David do? He protected the sheep. Well, uh, did, could you uh, find that uh, on Google the next day? No, nobody knew about it. What about when he killed the bear? Was there a press release made? No, no, nobody knew about it. God knew about it. And each time, God was building the faith of this young man because God had something for him to do. But that young man, in order to be... And here's the deal. God always has... God always has his leaders for the next generation and the next crisis prepared and waiting in the wings. You, you may not know who they are. You're looking around and say, well, who, 
all the guys, the great guns, the, the great ones are, they're not around. Well, that's because they finished the work that God had for them to do in their generation. That was actually said of David. But for every generation, God's got a new one in the wings that he's prepared in private, and they will be revealed at the right time. That's just how God does it. He's done it in every generation. So you got two options. You can be a man who lives in fear of other men, or you can be a God-fearing man. And every man has to make that choice. Every man who follows Christ has to decide how I'm going to live. Time and time and time and time again in Scripture, we are told, fear not, fear not, fear not. You do not have to give in to fear. Fear is real. It's a force. But you do not have to give in to it because of the power of Christ and the word of God that you have in your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every age, every generation has its challenges. Uh, the challenges we're facing right now, we weren't, chasing, we weren't facing five years ago or even a year ago. But we're facing them now. And it's remarkable how fast the dam is broken. This is the Johnson City flood. If you've ever studied American history, that dam broke in the middle of the night. That whole town was wiped out. That's where we are right now, with issues that we have never dealt with before. C.S. Lewis, great thinker, he died on the day that John F. Kennedy died. Interesting fact. Kennedy got all the press. C.S. Lewis got all the accolades in heaven. He, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis did not like newspapers, which is interesting because he lived in the age, the golden age of newspapers. There's a website called Thinker, T-H-I-N-K-R, and they put out some good stuff. They will summarize uh, books that are worth knowing about, but you can't read everything in the world. They will give you some key insights. Uh, C.S. Lewis did a little book. I, I didn't know about it until a couple of days ago because I read about it in Thinker. The book uh, was called Present Concerns, colon, journalistic essays. Just short essays, columns like you'd see in a newspaper. Only that's not what he normally did. And in the introduction, it mentions that uh, in a day and age where leaders would often read four and five newspapers a day, uh, Lewis just, he wouldn't read them. He considered them among the most meager forms of historical record. Uh, Lewis said, for anyone who absolutely must read the newspaper, he good-humoredly good recommended and accompanying mouthwash, like The Lord of Rings or another great book. Uh, Lewis's personal aversion to newspapers, in spite of his own aversion, he never condemned those who chose to read the news, and he wrote short essays for many magazines and newspapers itself. 
One of them that I came across, and it's short, the title, it's a long title, We Don't Need Democracy Because People Are Good. We need it because people are fallen. One, two, three, four paragraphs. Many people, Lewis wrote, are Democrats because they believe, along with the likes of Rousseau, the French philosopher whose ideas led to the French Revolution, which is basically what we've got today. Many people are Democrats because they believe, along with the likes of Rousseau, in the goodness of people that humanity is plenty wise and kind and creative, and each person, therefore, should get a piece of the government. Little note here. Democrat here denotes something more and refers to a democratic or representative system of government rather than a political party. Um, so he's talking in, in general terms when he says democratic. The author, meaning Lewis, the author is a Democrat because he believes just the opposite, that the effects of the fall of man have been severe and he needs only to look at his own life to be reminded of our thoroughly fallen state. Man is not basically good, man is basically sinful. Democracy is important not because we are good, but because none of us, so prone to fall for advertisements and gossip, so quick to understand our lives through cliches, none of us should be given unchecked power over a chicken coop, let alone a country. There's great wisdom there. Another way of thinking about this is that equality is often presented as an ideal when in fact it is not something that is good in and of itself and as, say, wisdom is. It is narrowly good in the same way that medicine is good for someone who is sick or clothes are good because we've lost that Edenic innocence. But neither equality nor medicine is good in the sense that it sustains and nourishes the human spirit. Modern medicine kills unborn babies. Modern medicine ignores the elderly in a hospital and lets them die, or makes them die. It's just not publicized. It's for this reason that propaganda elevating equality to the place of ideal invariably, invariably falls flat. When we insist on making it an ideal that will nourish us, we end up with a mindset that is petty and un immature, that hates any and all superiority. Does that sound familiar? That's where we are right now. This is the disease most likely to afflict democratic societies. Just as a more hierarchical, aristocratic societies tend towards severity and servility. If we, if we defend democracy for reasons that simply are not true, we increase our risk of losing it. Well, that's exactly what's happened. It's exactly what's happened. He just diagnosed it, and he wrote this in the 1950s. Um, we are losing democracy. These are my words. And we are fighting off the fear of man. What we need is the fear of God. Where we are right now, you don't need the fear of man, you need the fear of God. But the temptation is to live in the fear of man, is to live in the fear of the mob, is to live in the fear of the media. And they will destroy you. They won't blink an eye.
Aren't you glad you came tonight? We're just here to uplift you. We're just here to encourage your heart. We're just here to, uh, you know what we're here to do? We're here to deal with reality, and this is reality, and this is where we're living, and this is the world in which we are living. John Bloom, with Desiring God Ministries, has written an article called Lay Aside the Fear of Man. And as we start to study God-fearing man, I gotta take a little time to set it up. Uh, we gotta take a little time to kind of uh, define our terms and define what we're really talking about and what's going on. Uh, is it First Chronicles 12, 32? The men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We gotta take a little time tonight to understand what's going on. We gotta take a little time to discern they understood the times, they knew what Israel should do. So we gotta do a little analysis, looking around at all this stuff that's happening uh, daily, hourly in our culture, and we gotta make sense of it biblically. So John Bloom, why do we fear others' disapproval so much? We all experience this fear, and most of us don't want to admit how serious its tyranny can be. The Bible calls this the fear of man, and it can weave a web of ambiguity around issues that are biblically clear. The fear of man can immobilize us when we should take action and gag us into silence when we should speak. Well, that's real, isn't it? It feels powerful, but its power is deceptive. That's why the Bible tells us that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29, 25. The Hebrew word here for snare refers to traps hunters use to catch animals and birds. Snares are dangerous, he writes. If we get caught, we must do whatever it takes to free ourselves. God has the power to free us and he wants us living in the safe freedom of trusting him right now in this day, in this age. But he frees us not by removing our fear of disapproval. The word cancel has taken on a whole new meaning. I just asked my assistant to call a Christian magazine and cancel it. Why? It's no longer true to the Bible. I read, I, 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 just, that's it, forget it. And so I canceled my subscription. But there's a whole new sense of cancel. And cancel means uh, to shame you, to shun you, to destroy you, to mock you, to make sure that you'll never have a job or be able to make an income again. If you say or even think certain things. So that's a new, that's, that's the current, present definition of cancel. And it's, uh, that's, uh, that's tyranny. So Bloom says God has the power to free us and he wants us living in the safe freedom of trusting him. But he frees us not by removing our fear of disapproval, but transferring it to the right place. And typically he frees us by helping us face our fears, our false fears, so that they lose their power over us. 
This is a great article. I'll give you a few more paragraphs. Because he really helps us think this through. Because this is what we're dealing with right now. Is getting snared in the fear of men. And when you get snared in the fear of men, when you should say something, you don't. When you should speak up, you don't. Because you're more afraid of men than you are of God. And you're more afraid of the consequences that can come into your life as the result of displeasing them. So as a result, we go ahead and displease the Lord. We become Saul's. When we should stand up, we run. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. God loves men who fear him. He loves them. He's with them. He strongly supports them. Bloom goes on and says, when we feel this fear, it can stir up emotional fog and psychological complexity. But we cut through to the heart of things if we remember a simple biblical truth. We obey the one we fear. We obey the one we fear. The person or persons whose reward of approval we desire most, whose curse of disapproval we most fear to receive, is the person or persons we will obey. This is our functional God. That's why the Bible so often commands us to fear the Lord. Here are two examples. He quotes Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And then Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Bloom goes on. Both Moses and Jesus command us to love God supremely, and both of them command us to fear God supremely. They're not mutually exclusive commands. They're two sides of the same coin. If you love God, you'll fear God. If you fear God, you'll love God. They're commanding us to seek the massive, eternal reward of God's approval more than puny man's fleeting approval and to fear the terrible, eternal curse of God's disapproval more than puny man's fleeting disapproval. They're commanding us to direct our love and fear to the right God. That's a pretty good analysis of where we are today and what we're facing. He finishes, he says, lay aside the fear of man. Yeah, but how do you lay aside the fear of man? Here's the first way you lay aside the fear of man. Number one, confess your fear of man. As soon as you recognize what the fear that's in your heart is the fear of man, Confess it to the Lord and repent. Tell the Lord all about it. He gets it. He understands. 
Second, question your fear of man. Question. It's good to question yourself. Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? Do you ever talk to yourself? All the time. If the truth were to be known, the older you get, the more you talk to yourself. <laughs> because you're the most interesting man on the earth. <laughs> Why would you not talk to yourself? But a lot of times we listen to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Well, because I'm afraid if I take this stand and I really feel in my heart before the Lord, I should, but it might cost me my job. Okay. So, if you lose your job, then what? So you're questioning yourself. Well, uh, then I won't have income. Yes, but you remember that scripture, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, context, food, clothing, shelter, all these things shall be added unto you. That's what God said. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that man has the power to keep God from blessing you? If you honor God, and God says, I'll bless you if you honor me, those who honor me, them will I honor. But do you believe that man can keep God from blessing you if you do what's right? So you've got to talk to yourself. You've got to question yourself. Third, courageously confront your fear of man. Acts 5 says we must obey God rather than men. And that's right. We follow the laws of the land. We pay our taxes. We render under Caesar the things that are Caesar. But when Caesar tells us to disobey the clear word of God, we disobey Caesar. And we take the consequences. What I really wanted to do tonight was give you six ways to be a happy Christian. Some of you are laughing, and that's good, because we need a little comic relief here. Uh, we, we don't need uh, self-help sermons right now. We don't need positive thinking. We don't need any of that nonsense. We need, we need to understand where we are, what's going on, what God is doing, and we need to understand that we're in spiritual warfare. And we need to understand that each of us, we have a decision to make every day, and that decision is, am I going to be a God-fearing man? Or am I going to live in the fear of man? Am I, going to be, am I going to live under the tyranny of the fear of man? This didn't used to be an issue. It, it would come up every once in a while. It, it, it comes up often now, and it will continue to come up. We've all got our issues. We've all got our fears. And um, I, 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 I want to, um, I want to, here's what I want to do in the remaining two hours that I have tonight. <laughs> what I want to do is I want to summarize a message I have given in here before. It's been a long time. But I want to summarize it. Because it's what, it's what we all need to hear right now. Let me give you four questions. And actually, these four questions, um, we should each apply to ourselves. 
And here's the fact. The first question and the second question, every guy in this room is asking right now. Uh, you, you were probably thinking about this. You, maybe even it kept you up last night. So I want to say this. Every guy in this room is asking this first question right now in your life. And the question is, can I trust God with my future? Because what's going on right now? Now, it, it may be different from the guy next to you, the circumstances. Can I trust God with my future? You're anxious about something. Secondly, whenever you ask the question, can I trust God with my future? You're also asking the question, can I trust God with the timing of my future? Because in your scenario, in your circumstances, timing is critical. If you're out of a job, you've got X amount of money left, and the clock's ticking, and you need income by a certain date, and you're, and you're watching it. And the lower that balance gets, the more anxious you're getting. Can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? Timing's critical. Is it not? Yes, it is. Third, here's a question to think about. If you're wondering, can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? Ask yourself this question. How did I get a future? That's a great question. You're so worried about your future. How did you get a future? What do you mean? What do you mean, how did I get a future? I have a life, therefore I have a future. Precisely. And how did you get a life? Carl Sagan, the universe is all there is and all there ever will be. Uh, actually, he didn't get it right. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. O oh Lord, Psalm 90, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, You worried about your future? Oh, there's a good reason to be. And now, if you were, hey, if you, uh, like my grandpa, who was a, a preacher, little churches in the Depression, five kids, you're trying to feed those kids. Do you think, I, I, I have to ask my, did my grandpa ever ask, can I trust God for my future? Yeah, he did. I saw an ad, I found an ad online in the denominational paper that my grandfather was ordained in from about 1921. And in this denominational paper, you know, there'd be some articles written by some guys, and then in the back, there would be kind of like a classified and pastors who were looking for a church. And I found my grandfather's name. And I looked at the date, and he was married, and he had my dad's oldest sister and my dad's oldest brother, but my dad hadn't been born yet. 
And I looked at that, and I looked at it, and I thought, so there he was. What was he, about 25, 26? And God's called him. And had he been in a church? I don't know. My dad wasn't around. I couldn't ask my dad. And my dad wasn't around when it happened. So those years, but, but I'll tell you what he was doing. He was thinking, can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? I got these kids. Oh, he wound up with five kids. Can I trust God with my future? Just like we're sweating it about certain things, he was sweating it. But see, how did I get a future? How did I get a life? Let's look at some core verses from David. Uh, I, I, I've re- you're going to say, Steve, I've heard you. When we get to these verses, uh, you're going to say, if you've been in this Bible study, I hear you talk about these verses all the time. That's exactly right. Because they're core verses. I go to them all the time. There's certain verses I go to constantly. So let me give you some core verses to help you in this process of fighting off the fear of man and living as a God-fearing man who loves God and obeys God. Psalm 139, 16. One of the greatest of all the Psalms, Psalm 139, verse 16. <clears throat> David, uh, actually, we could start at verse 13. Uh, here, I think here is the central issue to man's life. Men want meaning. They want their lives to count. They don't want to waste their lives. They, they, want, they want to feel like they're having an impact. They want to feel like their lives are significant, that, <clears throat> that my life is counting for something. And if a guy doesn't feel that he has meaning in life, he will spin off, and he'll make bad decisions. In an effort to try and find meaning, guys will do all kinds of crazy things. So this is why a guy who uh, seemingly knows the Lord and is solid, you know, has his Bible and in Bible study and, you know, is a pillar of the church and has a wife and four kids, will suddenly just split and leave his wife at the age of 39 or 40 or 41, whatever. I can't tell you how many guys I've seen do that. I remember a guy who did that. I remember this little girl came over to our house, was playing with our daughter, and there were a bunch of little girls there. But this one girl I'd never seen before, she was dressed in all black. And the rest of those little 10, 12-year-old girls, they weren't dressed like that. And I was upstairs, came down, and there were some moms there, and all these little girls are giggling and getting ready to go somewhere. And I just walked through and waved and kept going, got my coffee, went back upstairs. And then later I said to Mary, I said, who is that little girl in all black? And she said, that was, and gave me her name. And I said, no, no, the girl in all black. She goes, that's her. I said, that can't be her, Mary. She's never looked like that before. She said, you don't know what happened, do you? I said, what happened? Well, a few weeks before, her dad announced at the dinner table, as they were eating dinner, wife, his, the mother was there, the three kids, that he had fallen in love with another woman and he was leaving that night and divorcing his wife and he was going to remarry. Did I mention that he was pastor of First Baptist Church in our town? Why was that little girl in black from head to toe? Why did she have black fingernail polish? But maybe she didn't know it, but she was in grief. 
Their dad killed her. He killed her. He killed that family. And he's off having a good old time getting his jollies. Why would he do that? He was looking for meaning. He might have been a pastor, but he knew nothing of the fear of God. He might have been a pastor, but he knew nothing of the love of God. He knew nothing about obedience to God. He might have preached it, but it wasn't in his heart. When you're trying to find meaning in your life, for a lot of guys, it's the most important thing in life. It's the most important thing in life. I have a question. If finding meaning is the most important thing in life, then why would David wait until verse 13 to address it in Psalm 139? If it's so important, why didn't he get it in verse 1? But he didn't deal with it in the first 12 verses. You know what he dealt with? He dealt with God. And... The fa- and there's a reason for that, because if you want to find meaning in life, you don't begin with yourself. You begin with God. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. That's amazing. I don't even understand my own thoughts. Do you? Why did I say that? I don't even know. I just said it. Why did I do that? I have no clue. God knows. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. He gets you. Your quirks, your nuances, the little things that are a little, little different about you. He knows. He puts you together. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. Every word you'll ever utter for the rest of your life, he knows the words, he knows the intonation, he knows the attitude behind it. He knows all things. You've enclosed me behind him before. What does this mean? Well, as we're standing here today on this date, what is it, January 26th? Here you are, January 26th, 2021. You look back over your life. You ever read a biography? Every biography I've ever read breaks up into chapters. If you look back over your life, you'll see chapters. You could mark them, you could date them, you could delineate them, they're that clear. And there's transitions from one chapter to the next chapter. That's why they're so clear. You can see the chapters of your life. You've enclosed me behind, oh, and before. So as we're here, can we see the future? No, we can see the past, but I can't see the future. Well, can I trust God with my future? I I can't see it. Can I trust God with the timing of my future? Oh, I can't see it. He has clearly marked and delineated chapters that are as clearly marked as the ones you've just come through. You just can't see them yet because he has enclosed you behind and before. That helps me. He's got you. Down to verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame, my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The idea is is skillfully embroidered. God puts you together. So why are you good at some things and not so good at other things? That's because that's the way God embroidered you. Why do you have a certain, uh, there's a uh, strengths finder. Why do you have any strengths at all? Because God made you a strength. Did he give you all strength? No. 
He gave you strengths, he gave you weaknesses. We don't want weaknesses. I'd like to have it all, but no one has it all. Some of you are good with your hands. Is everybody good with their hands? No, I'm not. Some guys are good at math. Not everyone's good at math, but some guys are good at math. Some guys are good at literature. Not everyone's good at literature. Some guys are engineers. Some guys, see, whatever it is you are, whatever your strengths, whatever your aptitudes, it's because he embroidered you that way when you were in the womb. I got a lot of weaknesses. Join the club. See, weaknesses make us rely on him. Our strengths tend to make us proud and think we don't need him. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Now, why are we going into this? Because of the days in which we're living? Can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? How did I get a future? How'd you get a life? Verse 16 answers those things. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. So when you go in with your wife, you, a lot of you guys have had this experience, she says, I think I'm pregnant. You go in with her, and they're going to do an ultrasound, and you see that little kid swimming around in there. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. But here David says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. God knew you before you showed up on ultrasound. God knew you when you were sperm and an egg, and he knew you 10,000 years before you were conceived. It's true of your kids and your grandkids. You ever think about this? This is great stuff. And you know what this does? It calms your heart. It just calms you down, man. It just kind of settles you down. Wow, that's wild. I hadn't thought of that. I've never seen that on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I probably haven't. They'd be outraged by this. They'd have to censor it. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you, I knew you. Same is true of you. And in your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Do you get that? God's got a plan for your life. That's a core verse. Along with that, here's another core verse that helps you answer the question, can I trust God with my future? Another core verse would be Psalm 31. 14 and 15. As for me, I say that you are my God. Not money, not my car, not my degrees, not my kids, not my anything. As for me, I say that you are my God. I trust in you, O Lord. Watch this. My times are in your hand. What times? All my times. From the womb to the tomb. That includes this time. Ecclesiastes 7, consider the work of God who can straighten what he has meant. In the day of prosperity, be glad, and God's blessed us. In the day of adversity, consider, think, for God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not know what comes after him. We're always trusting God for our future. We don't know what the next day holds. 
But he knows. Why? Because he's got a plan for us. And in your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. They're clearly delineated. Past chapters, future chapters we can't see. And the transitions. And along with that verse, write down Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. So God has a reason that you're alive. He has a purpose for your life. The Lord will accomplish. I don't want to, there, there was this thing they call, what do they call it? FOMO, the fear of missing out. You don't have to walk around FOMO'd. Because the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Is he going to accomplish everything I want him to accomplish? No, but he will accomplish that which concerns me. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. He will save you from that. Psalm 16, uh, Proverbs 16. Earlier in Proverbs 16. The mind of man plans his way. Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this in my life. I'm going to, but the Lord directs the steps. Thank God that he does. But the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You're not going to miss out. And he's, he's going to use good times and he's going to use hard times. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He uses them all to build us and to mature us and to teach us that we can trust him. You see? And we'll encounter things, uh, we'll encounter the fear of men in different ways and in different context in different situations but instead of running we have to learn to face those fears by trusting God and obeying God rather than men you say well I know I've read of some Christians and it cost them their lives precisely well well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to lose my life well guess what you're going to lose it that's something you can't escape you are going to die Yeah, but I, I don't want to die that way. Well, why are you even thinking about this? It is appointed for a man once to die, Hebrew says, and then comes judgment. God's already got your death, the day of your death, and the manner of your death, it's already in his plan. You don't need to sit here and worry about it. Jesus, he just said, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You don't need to worry about that. You just need to worry about today. Be concerned about today. If, if, you, if you take all of that on, all of that future stuff, Jesus said, don't take it on. You can't handle it. You're not equipped to handle it. It'll, it'll, it'll break you. You can only take so many problems. And when you go out in the future and take all the potential problems, and see, here's the problem. You never just have one anxious thought, do you? You never stop with one. Anxious thoughts multiply. Psalm 142.3. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. You just go back to the word. Well, I don't think I could ever go through cancer like my friend has. Yeah, you could. Well, I, I just don't have it in me. Well, you don't have it in you now, but his grace is sufficient. 
You've been through things you never thought you'd got through, but the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Right? I never thought I'd get through that. Have you ever looked back over your life, the chapters, and you had something in your life, and you thought, there's no way I'm getting through this, and you got through it? Yeah. Because that's what he does. He'll give you the strength that you don't have. It shall be given to you in that hour what you should say. I don't know what I'm going to say in that meeting. It's not the meeting yet. Well, I've studied really hard and prepared. Great, good for you. He'll probably give you something you never thought of just in the moment when you need it. Doesn't mean you don't prepare. It just means you can count on him to do what you can't do for yourself. That's what he does. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. Because it gets you through life. You don't have to be stressed, and you don't have to be freaked, and you don't have to be tyrannized. Like some guy that puts his hand on a 48-pound Bible <laughs> that he doesn't even know what's in it. And then he turns around, and then he goes out and makes laws that are absolutely contrary to it. I thank God that by God's grace, that's not me. Could be me. Used to be me. But that Christ has come into my life and invaded my life and pulled me to him. And I've got hope and I've got a future. And I don't have to be afraid. My father is running this show. He's running the world. Let me give you one other verse. Psalm 46, 1. And you may be saying, Stephen, my situation is really, really tight. I'm right about the end of my rope. I don't see any way out of this. I, I, I'm just, I'm hemmed in. I, uh, there, I, there, there's no escape. I, I don't have any options. I don't have any network. I don't have any friends. I don't have Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Then you jump down to verse 10. Well, why would I not fear with all this stuff going on? Verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. You remember the Red Sea? They had just left. They'd been slaves for 400 years. They had just left. They just plundered the Egyptians. They just had dinner. They're camped out. They're online checking the Charles Schwab accounts. They never had Iris. They never had gold, silver bonds. They never had Rolexes. They got them now because they plundered the Egyptians. Just get out of here, take everything. And they're enjoying a meal and then looking at their their financial papers, and they're just, God is so good, God is so good, and all of a sudden some, someone says, here they come, and they look, and here comes Pharaoh's army. Oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? Because there's no escape. Pharaoh's army's behind, you got two mountains on both sides, 
you got water in front, there's no possible way out. There is no possible way of escape. Now, I'm going to tell you in the Christian life, God keeps taking you into Red Seas. Not constantly, but what he'll do from time to time, he'll take you into a Red Sea and there's no possible way out, and then what does he do? He makes a way where there is no way. It's what he does. It's what he does. And he teaches us that he can be trusted. He can be trusted. And he watches over his word to perform it. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Yeah, but see, this is really, really tight. Well, margin of the New American Standard. Very rough-hewn translation, no varnish, just rough. says this, God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. It doesn't say he's available. He's abundantly available. We're blessed men to know Christ. We're blessed men to have Bibles. We're blessed men to know who our God is and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I'll finish with this. You may say, but Steve, I I am at the end of my rope. I am in such a tight place. If God doesn't come... I, I mean, I, I'm just out. I'm out of options. I'm, out, I'm just out. And I've been waiting so long. And see, here's the deal. The longer you wait, the, the harder it is to hang on to hope. Isn't that right? Yeah, that is right. If you're waiting on God, and waiting on God doesn't mean that you're passive and you sit on the couch and watch ESPN reruns and eat Bluebell. Waiting on God means you're active. You have things in your life you can do. Then do it. Do the next right thing. Don't do the next thing. Do the next right thing. But sometimes God hymns this in, and, and you've used all your options, and you're just waiting. You're, just, you're hemmed in like Joseph was hemmed in in the dungeon. Obadiah Sedgwick, the old Puritan pastor, said, if you're waiting in God, there are three things that you should remember in your life. If you're waiting on God and you're desperate, here's number one. If you're waiting on God, number one, God will take time, but God will not waste time. God will take time in your life, but he will not waste the time of your life. Yeah, but I've been waiting and nothing's happening. Okay, here's a verse for you. Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. If nothing has happened, it's because it's not the right time yet. God is working. You can't see how God's working, but if you're waiting on God and you're being responsible in your other areas, God is working for you. That's what that verse says. No eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. He's setting it up. It's just not quite ready yet. Secondly, said God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. This doesn't mean he's saying, no, it's just been delayed. So every once in a while, Mary, she likes to do her protein shakes, and we have these fresh bags of fruit from Costco, but she likes fresh bananas. It's fine. Every once in a while, I'll get a call. On the way home, can you get fresh bananas? I'll walk into Walmart. they got 9,000 bananas. I look at them, and I walk out. Why? They're all green. 
She didn't want green bananas. Green bananas are worthless. You ever tasted a green banana? They have no flavor. There's nothing to do with green banana. So you go down to the next door and you find the yellow with a little green, you know. If God is delaying, it doesn't necessarily mean he's denying. It just means the banana of deliverance is not ripe yet. That's what it means. When God gives you a mercy, it'll be right and it'll be ripe, R-I-P-E. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Number three, when God delays a mercy, he often doubles the mercy. So Job suffered. You know the story. It, it says that the, in the last chapter, when Job forgave his friends, God returned to him everything he had lost, double. Isaiah 61, 7 talks about God giving back double. I told this story. I'm going to tell it again. Christmas in 1997 was a tough Christmas. I was doing a lot of men's ministry. I was speaking to a lot of Promise Keepers events around the country. We had our own conferences. I'm going out 30, 35 times a year. We just hired seven, eight people because our conferences were running 1,800, 2,000 every weekend, let alone the big stadium events. Moved into a home and just Oh, I don't know, a few months after we moved in, I get a call from Promise Keepers. We're going to do five additional cities. Well, those are five cities I was already booked to go into that year. But I talked to the pastors, and they said, could you wait for a year and come next year? I said, sure. But what that meant was the revenue for those conferences was going to pay for the additional staff that we'd hired. And I thought, my gosh, if I had known this, I would not have moved into this house. Lord, I thought you led me into this house. He did. Well, then what's this all about? Oh, shoot. I'm going to have to trust him. And I, I, I remember looking at that, and I thought, you know what? There's no way, there is no possible way we're going to make this. There's no possible way financially. And somehow we scotch-taped it together. And I loaned some money and I broke some iris. To, and you, I know you don't break iris. I did, because I had to survive. And I paid the penalty. And somehow we lamed, ducked up, hamstring pulled, knee out of whack to Christmas. And just a few days before Christmas, and my mom and dad are, have just flown in. My daughter's coming back from college in California. Uh, I was in the hole personally $100,000. And I pull up to have, they all just got in, we're going to have dinner a few nights before Christmas. I was depressed, I was, gosh, I've been praying for months. Lord, I thought you led me to do this, I thought you wanted me in this ministry. You're killing me. Is there sin in my life? If you show me, I'll confess it. I was flummoxed and frustrated. And as I got out of the car to go to the front door, I couldn't be Mr. Scrooge. I had to, but it crossed my mind. If I found 100,000 bucks in a paper bag, it would get me to zero. That's a depressing thought. 
I walked in, hey, Steve, you know, my mom, my dad, hey, Rachel, you know. Mary said, come on in, we're ready to eat, and the table's set. And she said, oh, that gentleman from North Carolina just called, and he's sorry he missed you. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry I missed him. I said out loud, I wasn't sorry. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Oh, he sent you a note in the mail. I said, great, you know, all good. Oh, yeah. Ate dinner, you know, I'm trying to be happy, joy to the world, all that stuff. We had dinner, I hung around for a while, I said, gosh, you know, I'm really tired, I think I'm gonna go on to bed. Yeah, that's fine, we'll see you in the morning. I went to bed, I didn't go to sleep, I wasn't tired. I couldn't sleep most of the night. Finally got up early, got my coffee, got my Bible, I couldn't even read my Bible. Rachel wasn't going back to college, she didn't know it. Those people I hired were gonna be let go. I don't know, about eight o'clock, I went to get some more coffee, the phone rings, it's one of the guys calling from the office. Hey, Steve, I just came in, wanted you to know that gentleman from North Carolina had uh, sent a donation. I said, hey, well, great, just stick it in the deposit. He said, Steve, the check is for $200,000. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Now, here's the deal. I never told that man we had a need. I didn't write him a letter. I didn't give him a phone call. I didn't do anything. I, I mean, I never told him a thing. But he and his wife had been very blessed. They lived very modestly, and they loved to give. And somehow the Lord put that on their hearts. Now to him who was able to do the exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. My kids all know that story. And one day my grandkids will know it. Because unless Jesus returns 20, 30, 40 years down the road, those little grandkids, they're going to be in a tight spot. And they're going to be asking, can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? I remember, I remember when the Lord helped out my papa. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are who you are and that we don't have to live in fear and we don't have to live in worry and be tied up in knots. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And there are some guys here tonight that are right, right, right on the edge. They need a well-timed help. They need manna. And Jesus, you're the bread of life. We thank you in advance for giving them what they will need. You know exactly how to dispense your bread. We trust in you, O oh Lord. We say that you are our God. Our times are in your hand, and we will not fear men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.